0: Good morning. That was a wonderful time of singing, wasn't it? Just I felt God's presence so sweet. In our gospel reading this morning, Jesus says a new commandment I give to you. As I have loved you the way that I love, so must you love one another. And then he makes this bold claim by this, the way in which we relate, the way in which we love each other all people will know that you're my disciples if you love like this. I wanna talk about love a little bit this morning. Love is a big deal in the narrative of scripture. It would be the why behind the big bang of creation. Love, it turns out, is the very atmosphere of the kingdom of God. It carries the essence of of God, of who he is. who God is. In 1 John four nineteen it says, for we know and rely on the love God has for us. And then it says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. The grounding of love really is this idea of, of a flow. Um, it's a kind of energies, energy that is... Selfless and giving, and always moving, um, like a dance. Love is like a dance. In fact, the describing the Trinity, the early church fathers throughout history have spoken of the Trinity being constituted by this divine dance. I was looking at you've seen those little fidget spinners, um, you know that kids have, and you know when you just hold it steady you see the three little things. We've got a red, a green, and blue in here. But if you spin it, it takes on a whole different look. The three disappear into whatever the look is. It's movement. This is a, really a kind of way to look at love. It's always moving to look at God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We can stop the spinner and talk about the Father. We can stop the spinner and talk about the Spirit. We can stop the spinner and talk about the, the sun. But the truth is, is that that's a little bit um, unnatural. Because God is trinity, is constant dance, constant move. And the movement is what we know as the energy of love. Um, I remember when I was, went to the Rocky Mountains when I was a teenager And uh, right on the edge of the camp that we were staying at was this river. It looked fairly, you know, just it was just dark. And you could see it was moving, but I had no idea how fast it was moving. (laughs) And uh, one of the things they told us, now if you go on that river, just realize it's really booking, right? And so you go out there and you'd feel on your legs just you know, just pushing against the stream, pushing. And if you jumped in, it was beautiful. It was clear, rushing, right, clean water. When you, when you jumped in, you had to swim full speed toward the stream in order to stay even with the, with the shoreline. <laughs> and then you'd still lose ground. It was moving that fast. I, I think that there's something about the idea of love rushing at us that sort of captures Um, the way that God is loving us. Jesus said it this way, that God loves the world. And as a result, that he so loves the world that he gives. He gave his only son. He gives. He's in this posture of giving. Giving is motion. Giving is thrust. Giving is this idea of flow. And this love always wins. It always preponderates, it always dominates when you step into it. Now you can avoid it if you want to, but somehow there's a way in which we move toward it or step into it or open up to it. It messes with you. It is a love that's unconditional, which means it's not based on conditions. It's not based on the person being loved, but rooted in the person who is loving. God is love. In other words, he's a torrent of flow that is self-giving, that is incautious, and that is reckless. God loves you. He's rushing at you. And all Jesus is asking of us in this gospel is to channel that love that's rushing toward us, toward those who are around us. To love with the love we have been loved with. There's a text uh, in Romans 5 that says, "In hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who he has given us. The idea is that the reason we can love one another is because he has poured out his love within our own hearts by the Holy Spirit. The problem is that in the development of the human race, we grew in self-protecting ways and selfish ways, which is really an anti-love, anti-flow. It's us not flowing out, it's us grabbing and holding in. And the idea of, of, of a selfish love is that we tend to, looks like we're giving it people, but really we're boomeranging. It's not for them or for it. We don't love things or love people. We tend to love ourselves by focusing or using what we see or have around us. Augustine uses the Latin term incurvatus. It's a term. Great creepy name, Incurvatus, right? Um, He uses Incurvatus to describe it. And uh, this is love going out to get. This is love that fishes. This is where we love not for love's sake, but for the sake of self. And with this idea of Incurvatus love, we, we may say we love something, but we really don't. We just love how things affect us. So we may say we love to get new things, right? To buy new things, but we, we don't. We just love how we feel when we buy new things or get them as presents. And after we get them, they're not celebrated or treasured because we want more getting, right? That's what we do What we mean when we say, I love to get. The glutton does not really love food. He may claim he does, but he doesn't love food. He loves how he feels when he eats it. The greedy person doesn't love money. She loves how she feels when she hoards it or how she feels when she counts it, right? It's not the love of directly of the money. She's just loving herself. A Selfish spouse does not love her spouse she loves how her spouse makes her feel, and she will stay in the marriage as long as the spouse makes her feel that way. Same thing with a guy can claim he loves his spouse, but what is telling is when the spouse stops being what he expects the spouse to be, he's out. Right? This is incurvatus love it's not the kind of love that displays what God is like; it's not selfless it's not. Giving, it is self love. Now, the kind of love that Jesus calls us into in this text is the flow kind. It's the kind that decides to place value and preciousness on the person around you, irrespective of how they're acting or on a situation. No matter what's going on, whatever the contingencies are, you choose to engage. You choose to set value. You choose to flow toward that person without, without expectations of, of um, return. It's almost like going fishing without hooks, right? You just throw the bait in the water, right? That's this, this loving kind of spirit. Now, let me sidebar and say, that doesn't mean that you stay in every relationship or in every situation. I mean, if someone violates what, what I call the law foundation, you've got to step back from people. What I mean by that, the law foundation is, for instance, I'm a human being by creation. And I have a sense of gender, masculinity by, by design. And I'm a person of faith by a miracle of revelation. And In a relationship, what I do is I'm to take the strength of my humanity, the strength of my sexuality, my gender, the strength of my faith, and enter into that relationship, whether it's a job or a family or a marriage, any relationship, a friendship. Um, But there's some relationships that when you bring your strength to bear, your humanity, your gender, your faith when you bring it to bear they can get so toxic and people can be some people are just experts at being destroyers and and when you get close to them you find out that you start your sense of being starts being diminished i mean if i were in a relationship that was dangerous right a person beat you up or or at least could harm me physically or if I was in a relationship where I was being abused in some way, my sexuality deteriorating in some way or if if I was with a person that was being destructive to my faith, I would have to sort of back off a little you can't engage. You have to flee in a kind of way. Um, it's the engetty move, <laughs> which, is, which is David. You remember David loved Saul in the old biblical story. Uh, Saul was a king and David was being anointed as king. And, and David is sitting at Saul's table and Saul is getting jealous of David. And then one day, David, Saul starts throwing spears at David. You know, so he said they're eating his PB&J, you know, and all of a sudden, ding, you know, the spear comes, almost hits him in the head. And, uh, and then he's watching over time, either Saul was getting quicker or more accurate or what was going on, but David knew he was going to die if he stayed there. And so he fled and he went to the caves of Engedi. Interestingly, he still loved Saul. He just knew he couldn't stay there and live. See, there are situations sometimes that we, we get in um, where it's too dangerous to be around some people if you don't have clear boundaries. Um, I, I kind of think of them as, as the zoo people. You know, when you go to a zoo, how many of you enjoy going to the zoo, right? How many of you are glad that there's like these bars between you and the zoo people or the zoo creatures, right? <laughs> There's got to be some, there's got to be some distinction. And you can come right up to, you know, the glass or come right up to the bars, but you're not getting in there with them. And if you are a person that's supposed to go in with those creatures, you're trained. Right? There's some people like that. There's some people that if you're not careful, they will destroy you. But here's the trick. You can't hate them for being that way. You have to get away from them while you still love them. And then you have to say, God, how can I be engaged with them? In other words, zoo visiting, <laughs> right? Definite barriers, definite boundaries, but you have to still love them. This is what makes us like Jesus. We're called to be a loving people. First Corinthians 13 in the Living Bible says it this way, and I love this. Uh, love endures with patience and serenity. Love is kind and thoughtful. It is not jealous or envious. Love does not brag and is not proud or arrogant. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not provoked, not overly sensitive and easily angered. It does not take into account a wrong endured. It does not rejoice at injustice, but rejoices with the truth when right and truth prevail. Love bears all things regardless of what comes. Believes all things looking for the best in each one, not the worst. Hopes all things remaining steadfast through difficult times. Endures all things without weakening. Love never fails. It never fades nor ends. In other words, love always wins. I think one of the best ways to look at love is by how it responds to those who are the object of it when those who are the object of love reject and fail. Now before I end here, let's let's look at how God responds to us in our sin and to us in our failure. It's shocking to me. These are one of the ways I, I just don't understand it. I, My feelings tell me God hates me when I sin. James claimed that it's one of the ways that sin deceives is that it makes God our enemy. God never is our enemy, but we feel like he is. And if you are under the the domination of sin, you will feel like God is against you when he's never against you. He's always for you, but it's part of the deception of sin. Listen to this sacred text. This is 1 John 1. If we confess our sins, just admit them. That's what he's saying. He is faithful. That means he does it every time. And just, which means he worked it out somehow that justice calls for forgiveness instead of separation and judgment. Judgment. And he will forgive us our sins. Forgive, forgive. It's a Greek word. aphaimi means to send it away. (laughs) The scripture talks about as far as the east is from the west. It's sent away. He will forgive us our sins and purify us. Just in the confessing. From all unrighteousness. Not just the unrighteousness we confess, but the unrighteousness we're not even aware of. I'm actually convinced of being a Christ follower for 50 years plus. That I'm glad God never really shows us how stupid we are. Because I think we quit. So when the stupid comes to the surface, the little bit of stupid that comes to the surface, if we simply confess it, he cleanses us from all the stupid we don't know. (laughs) Plus the stupid we know. Notice what the scripture doesn't say. It doesn't say if we beg him, he's, he'll forgive us. Or it doesn't say if we promise to never sin that way again, that he'll forgive us. Notice it says if you, if you, okay, I'm glad you confess this, but you just need to suffer in guilt and condemnation a while because I'm just a little mad at you for this. That somehow we can make up for the ways in which we failed. Maybe we can get a break then. It's not what the text says. It just simply says, confess it. Just say, I did it. One of of my favorite stories from um, some of the saints of old is about um, uh, this one gentleman who, who Brother Lawrence, he was called. He never wrote anything, but they wrote a book about him called The Presence of God. And they were talking to him about when he fails. He was, a, he was in a monastery and he washed pots and pans. He tended to like washing pots and pans more than praying. He just said he felt God's presence and he, when he was washing in the floors and washing the pots and pans. He said prayer he found, he found awkward, which was funny, <laughs> kind of cool. But anyway... Um, to each his own. But, the, the, but what he was saying, he was talking about when he failed, when he angered or when he did something that he knew was breaking God's heart or breaking God's command. They asked him, what do you do, Brother Lawrence, when you sin? He goes, oh. He said, I always tell God, God, this is the best that I can do. And if you do not help me, it will only get worse. <laughs> That is confession. It's just us coming out and saying, "No, God, if you forgive me this time, I promise I'm going to, you know, get, make sure this never happens again." I don't think God cares about what you promise. All God wants you to do is step into the flow and realize whatever's going on, he washes it and his, he is more faithful to you than you can ever be faithful to sin. I'll never forget the moment that thought came to me as a teenage boy, just learning to follow Christ and my life was whacked out, right? I was always wanting to please people, not obeying my parents, you know, dealing with my hormones. I mean, just everything you're processing as a teen, it seemed like I was sinning more than I was not. And I remember telling God, God, I I just was sitting there, I was at my dining room table and I was crying and I said, God, I'm so, I confess, but I'm so faithful to sin. And I heard this in my heart. Now, I don't know if, I don't, I don't think God always uses words. You know, Gail and I have been married 42 years and, uh, and she, uh, we were out shopping because we have this new house in Tulsa and we had an apartment, which means we have to have more stuff than we had there. And uh, so we're out shopping. And I can tell Gail, you know, we're sitting talking with somebody, we're talking about this piece of furniture or something. And I can, by a look in her eye, know if she's saying, don't go here. (laughs) She doesn't say a word. I mean, but what she's really saying to me is, hey, listen, I don't like this. Don't talk anymore about this. I don't want this guy to try to sell us on this. You know, all from a glance. So when I tell you I hear God's voice, it's like that. It's like somehow I get a glance or something and these words are clear. And so I'm sitting there uh, just hating myself, hating being so stupid all the time. And, and I and just wanted to beat myself. You know what I'm talking about? And in condemnation, and I heard somehow in my heart, I'm more faithful to forgive you than you are faithful to sin. You will never beat me in my faithfulness. (laughs) He just makes it easy peasy this business of forgiveness. Because the real problem is not what sin does between us and God. The real problem, because he's always faithful, he's always just to forgive us, the the real problem is what happens in us. Our self-disappointment, our wanting to love and failing, our wanting to be good and not being. It's also the way in which we hurt others in our sin. It's interesting, you know, the Latin church, the Latin Catholics, um, some of their ideas that they have are so, there's so much there's so much gold in them hills. And and I used to get mad at them because they would talk about sin as being venial sin, mortal sin, and I would just slice and dice them and say, yeah, well, sin is sin, you know. <laughs> Until I, you know, started reading more of the ideas behind comments like that and realized that that all sin bruises. There's some sin that does worse than other sins, not between you and God, that all of it's dealt with, mortal or venial. But there's some sins that when you commit them, bruise you. And there's some sins when you commit them, they almost mortally wound you. They're sins that that have a deeper impact because they have greater ramifications in your life. To lie is a sin. To murder has more seriousness to it. And processing through sin, what the real idea is, is that we have to understand that sin basically robs our capacity to love. If you ever get a big bruise or a bad bruise, and as you get older, some of us know this. Some of you who are young don't know it, but you poor unfortunate souls. <laughs> but, you know, one of the things you notice when you get past your 50s or into your 60s is you bruise and then it never seems to leave. <laughs> <laughs> and it still hurts after a long time. So bruises, bruises hurt you in your capacity to do stuff because you're bruised. That's what sin does, just hurts your capacity to love just makes it harder. It's not that God doesn't instantly forgive you. It's that we have to kind of work through even our relationship with God. Every time I do something stupid, you know, I yell at a situation or get angry or somehow manifest something stupid, I always feel like, I mean, I feel like God's my enemy. I told you that already. And You just have to work through those feelings. You have to keep moving toward God. And even though God instantly forgives and there's never condemnation, the sin hurts you from being more human but what's crazy is that no matter how serious the sin god always is running at us i was in a um, when i was in college i we were i was part of a ministry that would go into the state penitentiary and I remember going in there and as we were talking with people you'd have these huge guys i'm you know, just you know I'm much little of them now but you know just this little guy that's standing there in front of these big muscle-bound guys and i'm saying what are you in for you know <laughs> well i murdered this person right i'm standing there in front of this murderer and i'm looking at this guy and i said listen i said um do you know that god makes it as if things didn't happen. It doesn't mean that you won't have to socially pay, but, but in between you and God, it will make it as if it, if it never happened and that you're totally forgiven as if it never happened. And looking at this guy, seeing these big guys, a number of these this times has happened, and they would start to weep. And you would see them almost crumbling to think that God would forgive them, right? That there was this, this sense of cleansing Of something so deeply horrific. What I'm saying to you is I'm always surprised by the recklessness of God's love, by his incautious flow at human beings. He is never one that wants us to ever live in any sense of guilt or condemnation. We're not to waste a minute on it, that somehow that, 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 that forgiveness and grace is like a shower. You know, if, you, if you've worked all day in the, in the garden and you're just all stinked up, you know, you get in the shower and you get distinct. You're not, you don't think about all the work you did. You're distinct. Somehow the shower just washed, that guilt and condemnation under the blood of Christ is like that shower that washes it away. There is no more any guilt or condemnation. Romans 8 says, therefore, we, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you remember the prodigal story? <laughs> in Luke 15, when the, when the prodigal came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he gets it all in his head how he's going to do this. So he got up and he goes to his father and watch. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, which means he was looking for him and was filled with compassion. This little ingrate (laughs) that wasted everything. The father has compassion for him and ran to his son. Didn't wait for him to scurry to him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and started kissing him. The son said, father, he had rehearsed this in his mind, you remember. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Notice that when the son confessed it, his dad didn't say, yes, son, you were an idiot. And you really did deserve all the trouble that you had. He doesn't even acknowledge it. the times when you confess your sin to God, it's almost as if he forgets it. Now don't misunderstand. That's between us and God. I wish people were that nice. But there are times that it's appropriate when you sin that you have to ask the questions. I mean, I think the reason God makes it so easy is so that we can ask the questions. How did I get here? Because if I don't figure that out, I'm gonna be here again. Or if you do something you know needs to have some restitution, right? If you told $50, you know, out of the office till and uh, you repent, you know what God's going to say to you is put the $50 back. (laughs) Right? I mean, so there is places for... Sin to not be so simple simply because it involves other people. But for the most part, this business between us and God, it's instantaneous, it's wonderful, it's open, and it's free. God, the father in this story just welcomes the son who has been so aberrant. Why? Because God is flow. Reckless, unrelenting, incautious flow no danger of abuse, because when we taste that flow, we love back. The scripture says we love him because he first loved us. That's why sin tries to dim you from seeing God's love and just convince you you've got to perform in some way. Because if you ever see that he loves you even while you're an idiot, I mean, that's what the, the Romans 5 says, Romans 5, 8. God proved his love for us even that while we were idiots, Christ died for us. What happens is that when you understand that he loves you, it's like that hitting that part in your knee or your elbow, you know, when the doctor's hit, you know, and your, your leg goes like that. It's, it's, you don't make it do that. It just does it. It's a reflex. See, when you know God loves me, you love him back. God loves you, you love him back. See, it's, it's, it's this, it, it, it isn't, it, we love him because he first. That's why the, the enemy of our souls wants to blind our minds to see that God loves you. He wants you to think he's a little mad at you most of the time. I mean, wouldn't you be? Because you're mad at yourself most of the time. Virginia Lively, she's a Presbyterian lady, tells of a vision she had in the late 1970s of Jesus. It's a pretty amazing story, but she gives a snapshot of what she saw as this flow of love. And here's what she writes, quote, the thing that struck me, she talked about when she was looking in his face in this vision. The thing that struck me was his utter lack of condemnation. I realized at once that he knew me down to my very morrow. He knew all the stupid, cruel, silly things I had ever done. But I also realized that none of those things, nothing I could ever do, would alter the absolute caring, the unconditional love that I saw in his eyes. I could not grasp it. It was too immense a fact. I felt that if I gazed at him for a thousand years, I still could not realize the enormity of that love, end quote. If we want in the kingdom, Jesus is saying to us, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So must you love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. <laughs> it's a calling. It's supernatural. And let me close with this quote. This is from Corey Ten Boom who lived as a prisoner during the concentration camps of Nazi Germany during World War II. She saw these horrible acts committed against uh, innocent human beings, obviously, including those done to her own flesh and blood sister who eventually was murdered by the Nazis, and here's what she wrote. Quote, in the concentration camp where I was in prison many years ago, sometimes bitterness and hatred tried to enter my heart when people were so cruel to my sister and to me. Then I learned this prayer. It's a thank you based on Romans 5.5. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have brought into my heart the love of God through the Holy Spirit who was given to me. Thank you, Father, that your love in me is victorious over the bitterness in me and the cruelty around me. After I prayed it, I experienced the miracle that there was no more room for bitterness in my heart anymore. Will you learn to pray that prayer too? If you are a child of God, you have a great task in your prison. You are a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. He will use you to win others for Christ. You can't, you say. I can't either, but Jesus can. The Bible says, be filled with the Spirit. If you give room in your life to the Holy Spirit, then he can work through you, making you the salt of the earth and a shining light in your prison, end quote. See, if we want to touch the world in any way, if we want to affect an impact in our children's lives or in our spouses' lives or in our friends' lives or in our coworkers' lives, it's not just about heralding truth. It's not just about having the right perspective or believing the right things about God. It's really about loving. When I was in Bible school, just over here in Broken Arrow, <laughs> back in the 1970s, I, was, I thought I was getting all Bibled up when I was going to go out and change the world by Bibling up people. And I was, it was right before I was heading home And I was in a class ready to zoom out and I had the craziest experience, one of the craziest experiences I'd ever had. And it was a vision. And I saw angels around me and and all this crazy stuff which I won't tell you because you'll think I'm crazy. But I heard this. People won't be affected through your life by the truth you tell. Truth's important but that's not what will catch them. People will only be caught by love. And that's why as a pastor, that's why as a community, this isn't about us just rallying around the truth. This is about us rallying around the fact that God calls us to love each other.